Hey everybody, welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, sitting here with Maddie and Jen as always. Good morning, Maddie and Jen. Morning. morning. Happy Jew year. I mean New Year to you guys. I say that as a fellow Jew. It is the New Year. Shana Tova. I don't, and you, I don't know what number it is. I never know what number it is. Jen. <laughs> Three Jews in a room and no, none of us know. We are all lapsed. Jesus. Jesus. He was a Jew too. Betcha he knows what year it is. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'd like to hear what you have to say. You know, you listen to this podcast. If you have any questions, any suggestions, any criticisms, or you just want to say hi, leave us a message at 845-307-7446. You could also email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. And please leave a review if you do listen to this podcast. Reviews are very important. Very excited about our guests today. We have two guests. It's our first, hopefully not our last, husband and wife team. It is Rachel Vindman and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. So they'll be coming up shortly. But right now, let's get into some important stuff. If you care about democracy and you care about the survival of our republic, then you need to understand, we all have to understand that we cannot give people power who have told us that they will not honor elections. Elections are the foundation of our republic and peaceful transfers of power are the foundation of our republic. Uh, and, and we must have elected officials in both parties um, who understand and honor that duty and that responsibility. That is our favorite Republican and right-wing patriot, Liz Cheney, who is referring, of course, to the midterm elections, which are coming up, Jesus, in a month. That's crazy. And she's really referring to the fact that there are hundreds of Republican candidates running in about 27 states who are full-on election deniers. And uh, nowhere is it uh, more critical and frightening than in Arizona. Again, I don't know that I have ever voted for a Democrat. Um, but if I lived in Arizona now, I absolutely would. Arizona, which was a hotly contested state in the, in the 2020 election, which eventually flipped and went to Biden. I believe it's a secretary of state uh, who's a major election denier. He's running there. Uh, I forget his name. What stopped us from from devolving into autocracy last time was the fact that people like Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, secretaries of state, just said no. And... This year, there are going to be people who are probably going to win who have indicated they would not have said no. And that's really frightening. It's just part of the overall craziness that exists and has uh, poisoned our system and our the minds of Republicans for the last several decades. Uh, here's another gem from Liz Cheney. The Republican Party is the party of Reagan, the party that essentially won the Cold War. Um, and you look now at what I think is really a growing Putin wing of the Republican Party. And you see news outlets like Fox News um, running propaganda. You watch it not just on Tucker Carlson's show, although he is the biggest propagandist for Putin on that network. Um, but you see it on many of their shows. And you, you really have to ask yourself... Um, you know, who, whose side is Fox on in this battle? Yeah, she's 100% correct there. You know, I saw this video on Twitter yesterday. It was these people at, a, at the Trump rally, I think. And a, the reporter was talking to a woman about 
Trump and the election and all that. And I mean, in, in essence, what this woman said was, how do I know the moon is made out of cheese? Because it's on Fox News. Watch Fox News. You'll see. I mean, the brainwashing that has occurred over several decades, which has just really eroded the intellectual thinking, the intellectual curiosity of millions and tens of millions of Americans is is pretty chilling. I don't know, guys. What else uh, piqued your interest this week? Maddie? I think we have to talk about Katanji Brown-Jackson. Yes. Let's. What she did in court was to basically call out the Federalist lunatics on the court and the faux originalism that they have. And specifically, there were two cases that she talk, that she really chimed in on. One was about the Clean Water Act, which she did a great job on. But on the Merrill versus Milligan, which is in Alabama, she basically destroyed them and explained what the 14th Amendment really was. She's not shy and she's not intimidated. And uh, unfortunately, she's in a very small minority. You know, when RBG was on the court, Chief Justice John Roberts often voted with the left and as a swing vote. And uh, we don't have that anymore. I mean, what's the the makeup? Six three. Six, three. And so as great as she's going to be, it's just truly unfortunate that a lot of it is likely going to be just preaching to the choir. Jen? I don't want to jump the gun. I have something to add later. Mm, very mysterious. What could that be? We'll just have to wait. <laughs> Everybody's just sitting around waiting anxiously now, especially me. All right. We have to talk about Trump and the whole special masturbator thing, as I like to call it. The news just keeps coming and coming. Uh, no pun intended. Oh, God. I didn't really just say that, did I? Um, so Tuesday, the Trump team filed a, pet- a petition uh, in the Mar-a-Lago documents uh, st- stolen documents case. Uh, they, they're saying that Special Master Raymond Deary, the outside legal expert appointed by Florida Judge Aileen, Can- Aileen Cannon to review the materials, should be allowed to examine everything, even the classified documents, to see which of these classified documents are actually belonging to Trump, which is the whole crazy thing in this in this uh, saga. Uh, this comes after the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals recently overturned Cannon's ruling and granted the Justice Department's request to keep the classified documents, which I believe are number around 100, separate from Deary's review. But the most interesting thing about this is that the way the Supreme Court works is that when this kind of emergency appeal gets gets put forth, it goes to a specific justice on the court who oversees a specific circuit. And guess who oversees the 11th Circuit? Who? Good question, Jen. <laughs> You're just full of mystery today, aren't you? Clarence Thomas. Uh, amazing they would have appealed to him clarence thomas you know the the completely objective unbiased and he never talks to his wife never talks to his wife probably never sleeps with his wife they probably i don't even know if they live in the same house he gets to uh he's the he's the first stop on this train and uh as a reminder for our listeners, Clarence Thomas was the lone dissenting vote last year when uh, a case came before the court to uh, order or not Trump to release and Mark Meadows release texts and documents, including and relating to stuff his wife, Ginny Thomas, was involved in. But he, he never talks to his wife. They never discuss business. Never. Never. And so what's likely to happen is that he's just going to push it up to the 
the rest of the court, not make a decision by himself. But we'll see. Um, I uh, Lawrence Tribe weighed in yesterday and said he didn't think that it was possible he would do anything but deceive. If he was going to do anything, he would have to bring the whole court in. Yeah. Which, in which case, the chances of anything happening. He could also kick the whole thing to the curb. Right. Which is what he should do. Which is exactly what this right. court should do. Not even hear this and, nonsense. And just one other thing on the Trump topic is mm-hmm. coming out today is multiple news agencies are reporting that the Department of Justice has reached out to Trump's lawyers uh, indicating they believe there were dozens of more classified documents that have not been returned. Yeah, that that hit last night. Yes, and that's really interesting because not only did Trump, but his lawyer, they swore that they had handed over everything and signed affidavits to that effect. And so this thing is, is certainly not over. On Wednesday, the 11th Circuit uh, granted uh, Justice, Justice Department's motion to fast track the appeal against Cannon's, Judge Cannon's order granting the special master. And basically what what uh, the court did was speed up the deadlines. So, you know, Trump's strategy is to stall, delay, kick the can down the road. So now you have October 14th is when the initial brief is due uh, by Trump. 10th, there's a response due, and then another response on the 17th of November. So there is a light to the at the end of the tunnel for this stuff, which is great. And uh, as Maddie said, the new demand by Justice Department uh, for any additional documents. I want to briefly touch on the Herschel Walker case, which if I spend too much time on it, my blood pressure rises. I mean, not only is this guy the dumbest, dumbest candidate to ever enter any race, I think, anywhere in the history of politics, but he's just, a, I mean, the, the hypocrisy here is is infuriating. I was listening to, I think it might have been CNN or maybe MSNBC the other night, as a Republican strategist, Alice Walker, and she said something like, you know, the reason Republicans are defending him is because, you know, there's the, the public political proclamation that he's made as a strong anti-abortion candidate. Uh, and then there's his private life. And I'm sitting there going, what the fuck? That's the whole point. That's the, that's the whole point of what liberals have been saying for 50 years is that this is private. This is between a wife or a woman and herself or and or her husband or her boyfriend or her doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That they are now using that as the defense of this guy. It, it's just it's stunning in its hubris and and hypocrisy anyway i could i could sense my blood pressure rising already but also infuriating is that the republicans almost uniformly are absolutely defending this guy as if he's not a liar not a hypocrite not doing the exact opposite of everything they've claimed they believe in let's play this uh, dana loesch clip so i don't care if herschel walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles i want control of the senate jen <sighs> fuck you dan loche <laughs> i mean first of all why bring in baby eagles this is just insane I know. and what the baby eagles do and i just i'm so angry because the republicans are way better at spin they get their people to fall in line and i know you're, when people michelle i'm trying to channel michelle you know when they go low you go high and i just can't i'm just so angry it's it's all so infuriating angry. it's infuriating because you're talking about a a spousal and child abuser someone who's threatened other humans with with death, someone who proclaims to be against abortion, even in cases of rape and incest and the health of the mother, 
um, and then lies about it and has paid for abortions, that the Republican Party is the party of faith, right? The good Christian party, the party of faith is choosing him over a fucking minister, an actual preacher. But he's a Democrat. Unbelievable. But his son came out. The, the controversy this week is that his son, Christian, came out and posted some stuff on Twitter, made some statements to the effect of, my father is the most awful human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Okay, you can fill in the blanks. Herschel Walker's response. The left would do whatever they can to win the seat. The left. His son, by the way, is like a real staunch conservative. That's what he's known for in his TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat influencer uh, mode. Where does the left come into this? Like Nancy Pelosi and Christian Walker had like a late night meeting of how they're going to conspire to take down his dad. The kid's talking about years and years and years of, of, of neglect and abuse and bullshit. And the dad is like the left. <laughs> but the favorite thing uh, about all this to me is, you know, circling back to Trump. Uh, this is an actual quote from Donald Trump uh, talking about Herschel Walker. In Georgia, think about Georgia. In Georgia, Herschel, they did the ballot to Herschel Walker. They did ballots. Do you know how great a football player he is? Oh my God. Wake me up from this fucking nightmare, will you please? Jesus Christ. Uh, last but not least, we got another uh, J6 hearing coming Thursday, October 13th. Uh, we have the midterms, as I mentioned, in a little tiny more than uh, a month. Uh, the big question is, are they going to put out a preliminary report before them, before then, a full report. And whatever they put out, is it going to be viewed as being politically charged because of the election? What a mess we're in. Anyway, uh, I am very excited to bring out and talk with our guests. They are Rachel and Alexander Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Rachel is an opinion columnist at USA Today. She's a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. She co-hosts the Suburban Women Problem podcast and is an advisory board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative. She's married to her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who participated in the first impeachment hearing of Donald Trump. And as a military spouse, she lived in Germany, Ukraine, and Russia. She's a prominent activist and plain-spoken political commentator on Twitter, where you can follow her at NatSecHobbyist. That's N-A-T-S-E-C hobbyist. Alexander Vindman is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who was most recently the Director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council. He previously served on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, Russia. He is currently a doctoral student and senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Also, he's a Pritzker Mil military fellow at the Lawfare Institute. He's an executive board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative. He's senior advisor for Vote Vets and the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Here, Right Matters. Alex was born in Soviet Ukraine. His mother died when he was a toddler. His dad brought uh, him and his twin brother uh, and his older brother to the United States. They were raised in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Alex uh, is a graduate of SUNY Binghamton and Harvard University. He's a Russia-Ukraine expert with a military career that spanned 21 years. He was on the infamous July 25th, 2019 do-me-a-favor call between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about investigating Biden. That was the call that Trump referred to as the perfect call. Rachel, Alex, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, and uh, Happy New Year. 
Thank you. Yes, I'm sitting here with uh, my co-producer, editor, engineer, guru, and uh, uh, Jack of all trades, Jen of all trades, Jen Hamoud. And uh, so we we have three Jews in this room. So uh, <laughs> my first question to you guys, I wanted to know, like, are both of you Jewish? I know, Alex, you were uh, uh, raised and born a Jew. And uh, Rachel, yeah. is that, uh, what's your as, story? As far as I'm concerned, yes. <laughs> Um, I am not, uh, but we are raising our daughter Jewish. We're very, I'm very active in our synagogue. Um, actually, on the board of, I'm a co-chair of the membership committee, which I like to say takes actually 90% of my time. And uh, if anyone's ever been a volunteer at a synagogue, you will uh, understand that. So, well, that um, makes you that makes you very Jewy in my book. Uh, my my daughter tells me that Rachel is more Jewish than I am. So, you know, <laughs> yes, she actually regularly says that she said it just the other night um, again. Now, is that but, because you uh, you guilt the hell out of her all the time or what? <laughs> no, I think, frankly, uh, Rachel is definitely more um, spiritual than I am. Um, and I think, you know, on that basis, uh, I think you know the the notion of faith is 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 kind of central to, to her, um, and I think that comes through to our daughter. Uh, well, also, you Alex was born in the Soviet Union and then raised by Soviet Jews, which is just a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not judging here because we have three Jews here, and none of us can tell what the new year was, so we have no idea what number it is. Yeah. So, we're, oh, no, we're, neither do I. Yeah, we're we're yeah. failing in it's our okay. our Jewiness here. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is a, that's a, you know I'll tell you uh, that's I get asked that question sometimes uh, not not necessarily uh, if we're both Jewish but you know whenever I uh, it comes to a question of faith I tend to uh, feel a bit of imposter syndrome because I think it is important to me it's kind of uh, you know the the tenets of the faith the traditions the the morals and ethics are something that I uh, believe in you know maybe tenets of the faith. You know, kind of as a as a, a practice of tradition or something of that nature. But I do feel kind of like an imposter sometimes, you know, in this particular area. Well, it's like the old, you know, cultural versus religious Absolutely. thing, which I'm totally yeah. on board with because, you know, I had friends this week. They were like, oh, I'm fasting and I won't be on Twitter. And I'm like, I'm eating a bacon, egg and cheese and I'm tweeting like a madman. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that, you know, there are synagogues now. Well, you actually don't have to believe in Judaism, but you could still go to the synagogue. I guess you it's don't what, have to believe in God. You don't believe you don't in God. Believe, you don't have to believe. Sign in God. me up. What, <laughs> what, is, what is it? Is it? It's like re, is it reconstructive or something? No, I don't I mean, really know. It's like re awesome so is what it is actually. There are members. I mean, did a little, but there are members of the reform uh, movement who people don't believe in God. And I just know this when we were doing like rabbi search committee and it was a question we specifically asked or members of the congregation could ask because for some people it was important for others. It wasn't because, but I mean, you know, this, there's this, this thing of like you sit down for a Passover dinner and you think there are like the tradition of it, you know, of the people around the world who've done it in some form. I mean, it doesn't have to be like the perfect Seder, Mm -hmm. you know, but sitting down, and doing this and and just it's a bond yeah Yeah. it is so i mean that kind of tradition very fiddler on the roof um but that kind of tradition is sort of like i think that's important um just you know for heritage and family Mm -hmm. and especially for our daughter to kind of make that connection and then when she gets older she can decide if she wants to do it or not but that that's the kind of the what I tried, to, what I'm trying to instill in her. But I mean, if she reads Torah perfectly at her bat mitzvah, which she won't, 
um, you know, it doesn't matter to me. It's it's kind of that that tie to yeah. something before her. Sure, it's connection and community and, yeah, and that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's the, the, the notion of uh, doing an interview with a rabbi and going, Rabbi, do you believe in God? Yes, the first time I was like, <laughs> That's what crazy. is happening? This is <laughs> yeah. so weird. But the um, new person. Wow, I love it. Know, I love the way that sounds. It's interesting. Rachel said, you know, kind of raised uh, in a, a family of Soviet Jews where basically there was no uh, practice uh, it, for, for my father came over here at 47 for his entire life. Um, and therefore there wasn't kind of a deep traditional or, or, or any kind of practice in the house, but I did participate in a, uh, you know, a Lubavitch, uh, um, you know, Orthodox, um, organization up until up through my, uh, bar mitzvah where basically they, they cater to, or they try to address the needs of the Soviet, uh, Jewish population. So. It's, I went from kind of, you know, not much, uh, practice in the home. My, my dad, you know, definitely has strong, strong feelings about, uh, being Jewish, uh, you know, positive feelings, uh, but to doing the, the, um, you know, <laughs> the weekend, uh, excursions to the, to 770 and the, the Lubavitcher practice. And then, uh, you know, now to, so it was a little bit strange kind of moving to a reform synagogue or something of that nature. Cause it's like, you know, just the different things to get used to. Well, you're you're going to a synagogue, which I I'm, I <laughs> yeah. a lot more than I, I I'm doing. But speaking of uh, uh your your child in the Brighton Beach, uh, I'm going to flip this around for a second because Jen Jen has something interesting she wants to ask you. Hi there. First, hey. I just wanted to thank you for your service. I'm I'm so honored to have you on the pod. Thank you so much. Um, as a fellow SUNY B grad. And uh, I, my grandparents lived in Brighton Beach, and those are my fondest memories, doing a tush leash into the ocean. And um, I have a very important question for you. Um, did you go to Mrs. Stahl's Kanishas growing up? Uh, I, I, I don't. I mean, I probably was. So the answer is I, uh, I ate at uh, several different Kanish places in Brighton Beach. <laughs> they were all Good absolutely delicious. I guess the question is, which one... Where is it located? Because I don't remember. I was probably too young to remember the names. Yeah, it was right uh, on. But, it was right on the boardwalk, right by the library. Oh yes, I, absolutely yes. I've been. Uh, I ate knishes on the boardwalk many, <laughs> many a time. Thank you so much. And they were delicious <laughs> for yeah. indulging me. I mean, like I, yeah, my my. Uh, there's something you know. Knishes are in- interesting. There, there, there's a kind of a breakfast dish called sibniki in in um, in Ukrainian. It's kind of that sweet cheese type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, I think it's a, some sort of adaptation either from the Jewish population to, you know, the Russian uh, Russian Ukrainian population or the other way around, you know, some sort of cross-pollination there. But I like those with the, the um, cherries, the sweet or sour cherries. Mm-hmm. That's the best one. That's the best kind of condition. And one so thing you're right going to learn. have a debate. <laughs> What's that, Rachel? Now we're going to have a debate about which <laughs> is the best condition. Obviously, it's Kasha. Which I was going <laughs> to... And I was going to say that the great thing about this podcast is that despite all the breaking Ukraine and Russia news, we we think it's important to talk about Kanishas. <laughs> That's the real global crisis right now. Where where can you get a good Kanish? <laughs> People are tired of hearing me talk about like you know probably some of the geopolitical stuff. So yeah, well that was the whole point. Kanishes. 
Yeah, um, yeah this is the culture war stuff. But we'll, we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get to the the, the non important Ukraine Russia stuff shortly. But uh, I second what Jen said, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. I, I want to thank you uh, for your heroism, your patriotism, uh, your service to your country, our country, both in and out of the military. Personally, I, I have found it and still find it utterly deplorable uh, the way you've been treated, which is just an extension of the larger issue in this country, which I, I want. I ask you about later about where we've come and how we treat our military and our law enforcement officers and how things have just gone chaotic. But I, I do want to thank you again. And uh, I think you in many ways are without peer for, for all of the things you have done in service to America. So thank you for that. Thank you. But my twin brother would dispute that. He would say that, you know, he's a, he's a, my identical twin would say that he is a peer, but you know. Well, but that's what I'm, twins are supposed to do. <laughs> he probably yes. tells you you were adopted, right? Like that's what I told actually, my brother. I tell him that he's adopted. Well, actually we have a slightly different <laughs> narrative. I, I tell him that I'm his creator. <laughs> I let him spit off of me as I made the decision consciously as a single cell to uh, divide into and bring him into existence. That is awesome and incredibly unique. I've never heard that before. and I definitely want to steal that because uh, I've been telling my brother uh, he's been adopted. Uh, yeah. my, my brother in a, in a family of small Jews is like six foot two with blonde curly hair. I don't know where he comes from. <laughs> Yeah. And I used to just tell him, you're adopted. That's where you came from. Yeah. The most important question, uh, are you guys cat or dog people? Dog. dog people. We have three dogs. Oh, what kind of dogs? Uh, we Well, so I grew up with cats, so I don't want to upset the cat people out there. And Wise choice. We, we, we will still associate with cat people, but we are d decidedly dog people, uh, although my daughter <laughs> likes cats too. Uh, we have a 14-year-old uh, lab greyhound uh, kind of built... Uh, sleek like the the greyhound uh, features of a lab. Uh, we have a beautiful uh, German Shepherd Aussie Shepherd mix. Oh, nice! He is he is what two and a half, babe. Two and a half, yeah. Yeah, and then we have a brand new puppy because we didn't have enough already. We decided to get a brand new Golden Noodle who is like twelve weeks old. No, he's fifteen <laughs> weeks old, Alex. And what are their what are their names? Somehow I, I sense that they have really interesting names. Uh, boots is boots is uh you know she has she has boots that's the 14 year old we have ace um uh who is the shepherd and we have loki who's li lives up to his you know mischievous name uh as the puppy well i'm a dog person and uh, i have two cat people in the in the room with me so uh, uh you you were very diplomatic as expected in uh in your inclusion of the cat people one other thing, uh, another thing I want to get to is uh, Curb. You were on Curb. That was Cheryl Hines is a close friend of mine. She uh, nice. was in Waitress, the film my late wife uh, wrote and directed. And she directed a film that Adrian wrote, which I produced way back called Serious Moonlight. And uh, that show is, to me, the funniest show on television. So when I saw that you were on it, I was like, this is amazing. And when Larry, when, when, when at the end, when you guys were talking about the call and you were like, I, I have to report it. And Larry's yeah. like, and you said, it's my duty. And, and then he screams, enough with your duty. <laughs> Too much duty. You're off duty. Like I was dying. I was absolutely dying. Was that like the most fun thing ever to do? It, it was a lot of fun, actually, surprisingly. I actually, I initially declined uh, the invitation. 
I never really watched what? that show um, too much. I mean, I watched Seinfeld. You shouldn't admit that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I you never, shouldn't admit I, that. I just didn't. It was on HBO. You upset uh, a lot of Jews with that comment. Yeah. yeah. Well, when we lived overseas, we didn't have we access to HBO. That was sort of the thing. It was on HBO show. and stuff like that. So it was just harder to to um, to kind of get into it uh, based on where we lived. But I, of course, I knew who he was. And when you know, after I declined, you're like, why, why don't you at least take a call with Larry? And he was funny and charming and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, when when we spoke and kind of uh, uh, pitched a pretty comical idea, although you know I'm not I wasn't sure how I felt about stealing shoes from the Holocaust Museum. That kind of <laughs> I was not risky, uh, definitely not risky. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know it was it ended up being lots of fun. The cast was terrific. Cheryl was super, just about as lovely as you could imagine. Um, super super, uh, you know, just just uh, very welcoming and, and uh, very kind. So I really enjoyed uh, working with the, the cast and crew. Larry was a little bit odd, you know, but you know, you know that. Alex, I think that's a gross oh, understatement. This thing. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, I think he would. Ex- I think that's why. Uh, that's his part of his draw. Is part of his appeal. Oh, everyone. Um, my kids all the time tell me that that was so Larry David what you just did, which basically means <laughs> I was inappropriate, uh, unpolitically correct, and saying yeah. and doing something I should not have done. Uh, but yeah, that is his, that's his I, thing. I shouldn't be perceived as like uh, you know uh, harshly negative. It's just that yeah, he's he's odd. So was um, it was but, it all ad? Li- were you improvising? You know, uh, keeping was, in form with the format of the show. Like, is everything is improvising? Yeah, I'm I'm much much better kind of uh, unscripted, frankly. <laughs> and uh, the the few times that there were uh, there was something to, uh, uh, a script of some sort. Even then, it wasn't kind of ironclad. It was just kind of relatively loose. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would do what Larry does, which is line. <laughs> Somebody would tell me the line, I'd say the line, and we'd move on. But uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be a whole new career for you. I took a lot of liberties. Uh, I took a lot of liberties and improvised a couple things, like you know, the sneaking around the the um, the uh, the um, committee members' uh, mother's house. You know, we played around with that idea, like you know, mm-hmm. using some some spy trade craft and stuff like that. Uh, some of it didn't make but the it. The last in. line when the you said, line, you know, "Call like, me Colonel." Yeah, that was that, that was, was improvised. Oh was, wow, uh, that was actually quite yeah. funny. That is uh, funny. I, I thought that, yeah, I thought that I, was really I, funny. I, I'm very, fu- I'm the fun- funniest member of my family. So, sure, you're the, the 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 funniest member of the first Trump impeachment hearing, without a <laughs> yes. doubt, without a doubt. Rachel, were you on uh, set for that uh, curb st- stuff? Uh, no, it was during the height of COVID, and um, what was funny is. Alex's office is off of our bedroom and he was having this, I was in our bedroom, like, I don't know, folding laundry or something. And I was like, his computer is the back of it is towards, I guess, you know, the, the door to the room. So I was like, is that the real Larry David? Like you're on a zoom with the real Larry <laughs> David. And the answer was yes. Yeah. But it was like, it was also top secret. So I, I left, but I just couldn't believe he was really talking to him. And then, you know, things didn't happen for a while. We thought, well, maybe it's not going to happen. And then they reached out and wanted to make travel arrangements. And we had a niece in L.A. that we hadn't met. She was actually born on Alex's birthday in June. And so we were excited to go. This is in March to meet her because, again, COVID, COVID shutdowns and couldn't fly and everything. So we we were not really sure what to expect at all. But um, what did we, we do went... for your birthday again? Oh, yeah. For your birthday, it was really awesome. Alex filmed Curb all day. And then he went to Arnold Schwarzenegger's house in the evening and hung out with him. 
for a couple hours. No, but it was okay. Alex, yeah. it was <laughs> thank you for your service. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, but the good thing was I got to I got to be with my nieces who live mm-hmm. there. So awesome. it was it was quite. But I yep. I dropped him off a couple times, and I have to tell you, Alex is like by tradecraft and powers of observation. We went to an event in LA, I guess in around March of this year. So it was a year later. And he was like, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure like the, the house, Larry's house on curb is like, it's right around here somewhere. <laughs> and we, we were talking to the people who of the event where we were going and they're like, yeah, two doors down. I was like wow. the house we parked in front of. So Alex's powers of observation are really good if he wants them to be, but very, uh, we, we very James Bond of you. Yes, yes. I mean, it's only like when he turns it on, maybe it's a switch. But and um, so no, the it bi- was a great experience. The big question is: Are you guys now binging every episode of Curb or not? We we watched uh, the entire last season. Um, we watched a couple seasons before that too. Yeah, we, we did. Prep. So I'm I'm working on my doctoral dissertation. Actually, I turned in the first draft uh, last Saturday and working on revisions now. So uh, that kind of uh, that that you know supersedes all other kind of leisure activities more important than curb this is why i don't have a phd <laughs> yeah. or Me a master's either. degree I'm almost there almost there what's the yeah. dissertation on uh u.s policy towards uh ukraine from 1991 to 2004 or uh i, I touched uh, it's basically the prelude to how we got to this war hmm. it's riveting absolutely riveting are you being sarcastic <laughs> Somehow I, I sense sarcasm there. Yeah, it's a, it's you know, it's it's about as exciting as it can be, and Alex, it's it's quite readable, but I mean, it's still a, you know, hundreds of pages of academic work. So wow, think of that what you will. Well, congrats on that. Good luck with that. Uh, last thing is uh, before we get to some lighter stuff uh, is uh, what's home life like for you guys? You got an eleven-year-old daughter, right? Uh, so she still likes you. I I have an eighteen-year-old, so I say that with a measure of remorse it, but it, it's 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 wonderful ellie's terrific but you know with rachel it's it's also miserable no just kidding um <laughs> uh no it's 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 good we have a, a pretty happy home life you know it's kind of uh ellie and i are very kind of peppy and cheery and stuff like that um and rachel is i know i mean <laughs> like, what, it's like that. finish you really that sentence that you're, you're like I mean, just left goodness. it there i don't want to i mean i'll let you draw your own conclusions no, uh, we have a, we have conclusions a already job. drawn alex <laughs> um yeah i think the biggest the, the biggest challenges right now are uh maybe unpredictability you know that's the the consequence of of uh the whole trump affair is just right kind of every, everything still is new we're, we are, you know, I'd like to think that I've been pretty successful. I've written a, a huge amount, um, you know, whether that's for, for dissertation or publication discussing what's going on in Ukraine. I'm on TV. A book. Yeah, a book. Uh, I'm on TV talking about this. I'm engaged with the White House and mm-hmm. Congress. Lots of really, really interesting things. Go, lots of interesting projects, but there's a huge amount of unpredictability. I think Rachel's pretty frustrated that we still live in our house that we thought we were only going to live in for three years uh, when we moved back from Moscow in 2015. And she's really itching to, to move somewhere. So we're you know trying to resolve some of these issues. But it's it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I think our home life is, is 
just normal. I mean, that's what I, you know, mm-hmm. I try to tell people. I was just in, um, I'm traveling, getting ready to go home, but for the past three weeks, I've been visiting um, some battleground states mm-hmm. where the organization that I work for um, has really tried to reach out and mobilize suburban women. And, you know, it's, it's this, there's a lot of people who've been retaliated against, even at local levels and docks. Um, Mallory McMorrow's mom was there last night and I got to meet her, which was really special. But, uh, you know, she talked about, I, I really didn't know. I mean, She's had to call the police many times mm. just because Mallory McMorrow got up and, you know, did a speech that went viral right. and said she's not a groomer. I mean, like right. just defending herself. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And, yeah. And then like, especially local school board elections mm-hmm. and, and I'm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And, you know, when we did our Lincoln Project ad like two years ago, and um, this is actually why Alex was didn't do a scripted version of um, of Curb because we did like 78 takes, I think. Um, Alex is not so good with scripts, but he's really good uh, just spontaneously. So we had to do a lot of takes. But my first line, which I remember because I said it so many times, is what happened to us could happen to anyone. Sure. And it, and it and, is. And, right. And so like, we have a bigger platform, so it's mm-hmm. a little bit harder, I mean, to go after us. And we were able to get protection and, and stuff. But it's this is the issue of like we are just normal people and and so when we're fighting extremism it's so important to realize that this could happen to anyone <laughs> it's frustrating that you know one side thinks that they get to decide what normal is yeah what who who gets to live their own lives you know sort of free without without interference without um yeah, no, and I want to get to a lot of that stuff shortly. And okay, so I, I would just want to ask right now, like, so what is your current party affiliation? I know, Rachel, you had, I read something where you had said something like, I used, I, I was a card-carrying member of the yeah. Republican Party. Uh, Alex, I have a sense of maybe where you land. But, like, are you guys, are you in the middle? Are you yeah. Democrats, no, independents? I, I registered as a Democrat. No, I registered yeah. as a Democrat whenever... We, uh, whenever Alex retired and we got our Virginia driver's license and we had to become Virginia voters and I registered proudly as a Democrat, mm-hmm. I can never see myself voting for a Republican again because I think, you know, um, for the rest of forever, this, this is the fight and mm-hmm. I just can't be um, part of a part. I mean, not that I really voted with them for a while, but I, I cannot identify with a party who either publicly or just by, by default – I mean, because the number of Republicans that will come up to Alex and say, hey, I'm a Republican. And I just want to say thank you for what mm-hmm. you've done. I really admire it. I want to vomit or hit them. So usually I just walk away. But no, nope, nope. If you don't right. have the guts to stand up and say something's wrong, then I have no desire to even talk to you, much less vote with you. Right. And Alex, I don't know where you were before or where you are yeah. now. I, I probably doubt you have Bernie Sanders bumper stickers on your car. But like, where, where have you landed? Yeah. So. So I would say this, I, uh, I can tell you where I was from kind of from a mental state of mind. I grew up in New York city. Uh, so I would, I tend to be, uh, more socially kind of liberal, uh, but, um, kind of from a, you know, foreign policy, uh, tend to be more conservative. So I was middle of the road. Um, I think military in general tends to be kind of center, right, center, left. Mm -hmm. We don't don't usually have a lot of extreme. We didn't in the past have a lot of extremism. I think there was a, it's it's a growing issue now. Um, you know, in the past, I voted for whoever I thought was the best candidate, uh, not necessarily uh, driven by kind of uh, party lines. Uh, but I think, as Rachel pointed out, when we had to, when we I mean not not when we had to, 
I, uh, but when we registered and um, here in Virginia, based on the fact that we took up residency year after I retired, I, I registered as a Democrat. You know, there's another kind of uh, a note here in the military. We're apolitical uh, and we take that seriously to the point that we abrogate some of our responsibilities. We have too many folks in the military that frankly, frankly, just do not vote. Um, military officers in particular, because they think that that's, that could be a partisan activity. And that's one of the things I've really, I mean, frankly, that was, there's a 180 degree turnaround for, for me there, because I think it's more fundamental than frankly, even your military, uh, duties and responsibilities or your duties as, as a citizen of the United States. And there you need to vote. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there, this is an unhealthy feature that we try, uh, in the military that we go take the apolitical nature too far where we abrogate our responsibilities and we don't participate in the democracy that, you know, we've signed up to defend uh, even at potentially the cost of our lives. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. I want to talk about Twitter for a second, which depending upon who you are and what day it is, uh, it could either be a great thing, uh, a horrible thing. Uh, I've gone viral in a great way. I've gone viral in a not so great way. But you guys on Twitter... I find awesome. You're my favorite Twitter couple, way more than Kanye and Kim, uh, even though they're not <laughs> technically a couple anymore, although I think Kanye still thinks they are. You inject a lot of humor, a lot of sarcasm. Uh, it seems that those uh, virtues are very important to both of you. Uh, for example, Alex on September 30th, uh, around the talk of all the annexing of uh at regions of, of Ukraine by Russia. You tweeted, tomorrow at 2.59 p.m. I will sign a decree annexing the entirety of the Russian Federation. And then you uh, tweeted recently, my next act will be, uh, will liberate all occupied Ukraine territories and grant all of Russia's colonial holding independence. You are all welcome to attend the signing ceremony. And Rachel, you are also uh, a prolific uh, tweeter. Uh, You're incredibly loyal, which I love. Uh, You also criticize Alex, particularly his spelling, I've noticed. So I love the back and forth between you guys. How important is Twitter Twitter to you both as public figures, controversial figures, but also just as Americans who might see it as a forum to speak your mind. Controversial? I don't, I don't, I don't know what way. So, some uh, people have said that, Alex. Personally, I don't believe yeah. that. It's not my yeah. opinion. Uh, yeah. Not the best people. I think you um, actually need to speak up more, Alex. Really take a yeah. stand, a firm stand. Yeah. You know, uh, I I will just say, um, this is Rachel's kind of uh, uh, bailiwick here, but um, I would I would say that uh, I tend to not be sarcastic. Um, that's kind of a new feature as I've kind of gotten a little bit more you know free uh, with with a, my a public role. Uh, I tend to be more policy oriented, but I you know that one was hard to resist. <laughs> I was going to say annexing you, Russia. You yeah. might win the sarcasm <laughs> was, award on Twitter, actually. <laughs> that, that one, so, you know, I, I like to punch back against like these ridiculous uh, uh, MAGA Republican, uh, you know, politicians. Um, so that, that might be a little bit snarky uh, there, but in general, I try to keep it pretty serious about policy. Uh, but, you know, when Russia says it's going to annex like four territories in Ukraine, when it's getting its ass kicked, it's kind of hard to, to resist that one. Oh, of uh, course, especially coming from someone like you, you know. And yeah. Rachel, Rachel um, you speaking of punching back, Rachel, you, you took some heat recently. You tweeted something. You said we should, regarding the uh, Hurricane Ian, you had said we should use they slash them pronoun, pronouns for Hurricane Ian to annoy DeSantis. I support that 
tweet 1 billion percent. I know exactly what you meant by it. I think most people know exactly what you meant by it. You apologized for it. You took it down. Apologizing in the sense of recognizing that it might have been insensitive to some people. But it, to yeah. me, it wasn't insensitive and it was a punchback. It was exactly what someone like you or any of us should be tweeting because there's, yeah. there, it's an infuriating thing that mm-hmm. needs to be yeah. pointed out all the time. I mean, you know, what I was trying to do was, and I think you understand, is I was trying to say, like, this is a governor, you know, we're going to have a horrible situation, a governor who has been worried about things that aren't aren't real and now we have a real situation where people are going to die where people are going to lose everything but he's been worried about attacking children and other you know solving problems that don't exist and decimating public education and uh you know departments and agencies because people weren't loyal to him so we're losing a lot of institutional knowledge right when you need it the most and um you know i I did get some blowback from the trans community who thought it wasn't helpful. I mean, that's being said after I deleted, I got people that, hey, that was the people in the trans community who thought it was fine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a stumbling block. Um, I'm still learning. And I think that's really important. Um, Again, at the event that I was attending last night, we were talking, you know, sort of as privileged, if you will, white suburban women. If we're going to be allies, we have to listen. And sometimes you can think you're doing something and... It might not land as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, with others. So I want to be respectful of that. I will never apologize for going after Ron DeSantis. And um, it was funny. There was a one of those just purely online, you know, clickbait right wing websites yep. wrote a piece and they had all my tweets. And I was like, it's actually like I would I would retweet this because this is exactly what I did. And I meant every word of it. They yep. had all the tweets. And. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I meant. That's exactly what I meant. I, I apologize to the trans community. I do not apologize to Ron DeSantis. I double down on how I feel about Ron DeSantis. And um, I'm sorry, you know, in, in the attempt to be humorous, if it if it got lost for some people, you know, that's not what I wanted. But, I mean, but you don't make, I, I don't think you make any mistakes. Yeah, oh, it's well, funny yeah. you say that. I, uh, Alex, you read my <laughs> mind. Um, I mentioned before, you guys, you, the loyalty that I see on Twitter. Um, you recently tweeted, Alex, quote, I don't think, uh, and you used Rachel's Twitter handle, and that's sick, hobbyist. I don't think Rachel makes any mistakes. I think she's perfect. Quote. That was a quote. Um, and then on yeah, September 20th, on, tw- on September 20th, Rachel, you tweeted, just now at Dulles Airport, a man came up to me and asked if I was Rachel Vindman. I told him I am. And he said, my husband and I are shitbags and walked away. This has never happened to me, uh, to, to my far more recognizable husband. And that is the difference between the way people think they can treat women. And Alex, mm-hmm. you rode in on your horse to her rescue, uh, your Twitter horse, <laughs> uh, whatever that Twitter looks horse. like, Twitter horse. And you said, cowards! Some lowlife menaces my wife at the airport. Try picking on me. Only once was I challenged in public and face-to-face, and it was some Weasley former GOP congressman in the White House. Didn't go well for him. I mean, this stuff is awesome. And, and I really respect both of you for speaking your mind, for defending each other. You know, but as I said, Twitter is a crazy landscape, and there's always going to be people who will find the yeah. something, you know, the... The, the negative. I have, a, I have a. This is easy. I first of all, let me tell you about my Twitter. It's a stallion. It's a huge, massive stallion. <laughs> or stallion. 
Armor plated. That's what I char- charge armor is. Armor plated like a Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's armor plated like you know, the kind of medieval armored. Uh, you know, you don't want to yeah, mess like with the, the, the armor. The kind from Monty armor. Python, like yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But you, you know, go. don't but, you um, think Andy like people just want to see someone punching back? I mean, look. You know, speaking of Malin Maguire, look at look at what yeah. how, what she said went viral because we we're like. We want that. I said this on Twitter yesterday. I say this all the time. We are fighting for our families, for our communities, for democracy, for our country. We want politicians who fight back also. Like, people love this Dark Brandon thing. I don't really understand what Dark Brandon is, but the president. But they love that the president is punching back in a meaningful way. Not just sarcasm. or Like, fight for us. We elected you. Fight for us. We have felt like we got beat up by all these MAGAs who somehow emerged from under rocks. They have their flags. They have their like their team. Like we're a team too. We're just not crazy about it. I've but, tried, yeah. Sorry, but I just want to say I want to share my Twitter secret. Okay, <laughs> this is what makes makes Twitter work. If you follow this rule, <laughs> then you have no issues. Okay. First wow. of all, for me, it's a source of information. I've got. I basically uh, the only reason I set it up, I set it up in in the summer of 2018 when I joined the White House because I needed to see if people were getting fired. To see, yeah, well, to, to know what the president was tweeting, it was going to affect my day day at work, and it was going to have like some policy implications. Or ma- mainly, it was going to be broken glass that had to be uh, 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 swept up. So I still use it as a information tool to understand what's going on, where kind of news. Uh, it, it's just amazing, you know, community source news. But there's another trick to it. Um, if I, I use it as that, as, as mainly as a kind of a tool. Maybe a little bit as uh, entertainment I, when I follow Rachel's account, uh, but I fire off tweets and I really don't care about comments. I say what I think I need to say, mm-hmm. and I just don't pay attention. I mean, every now and then I, I might take a pulse of what's going on, uh, but uh, just to understand kind of what the, the temperature check. But I really, really, frankly, do not care um, what people say in response. You know. Unfortunately, sometimes that might mean good, good folks that try to kind of respond and engage in a discourse. I don't necessarily do that. Uh, I haven't. It's, I apologize for that. But I also, frankly, don't have any time or any any inclination to engage with with trolls. And as as a matter of fact, I often try to when I do look at, at responses, I do it to like to kind of troll back. I see if there's somebody that's following me that says that said something profane. Or negative, and I just block them. So it's kind of like a game I do. Like I, you know, put some bait out there. It's like this. I could start blocking people. So it's blocking it's is really, the best. It's, it's it is. Yeah. It's so satisfying. It, it's yeah. it's it is Self-care. so satisfying. Uh, but th- that's sage advice, uh, Alex, and it's pretty much what I follow personally. Um, you know, I have almost I don't know maybe I have like around ninety two thousand followers which to me is amazing i mean you know taylor swift probably has like 80 million or something but for me it's like 91,990 more than i ever thought i'd get so i'm very appreciative (laughs) of that and uh, i've learned the hard way how to sort of navigate through this crazy space i don't Mm -hmm. engage with people i used to once in a while if there's something that could elicit a really snarky response from me that points out a bigger picture, a bigger issue, I will go there. But I think you're right. The key yeah. is just speak your mind, have your voice. If it's a, a unique voice, an important voice, people will will follow that voice and listen to it. 
uh, people have told me that, you know, I speak for them, which is a crazy concept for me to accept. But there's a lot of people who said, I, I, I can't articulate what's in my brain. And so th there are people who, who do that for me. And I'm very appreciative of that. And, and, and the key is not to look at the, the comments because there's, there's a, mm -hmm. not just bots, but real life crazy uh, yeah. uh, people are, that are out there. But it is an incredible space and it connects people and it, and it is a great forum uh, and it is a great, uh, you know, uh, a curator of news and a place where people go. Um, and so, Rachel, I want to I want to I want to play a clip and then I want to ask you a couple things about your uh, your podcast. And but let's let's play this clip. It's a little long, but it goes really quick because it's I think like it's I think everyone should have this clip for themselves, like their own little 90 second bio, which just so okay. aptly describes who they are and what they're doing and what they're all about. Hi, I'm Rachel Lindwood. I am a suburban mom who lives in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. with my husband. You may have heard of him. A key witness in President Trump's impeachment trial. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman. And you went immediately and you reported it, didn't you? I did. Why? Because that was my duty. Our lives changed dramatically. No, I don't know Vindman. I never heard of him. I never saw the man. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander <laughs> Vindman, he is retiring. Through a campaign of bullying, intimidation, and retaliation, the President of the United States attempted to force Lieutenant Colonel Vindman to choose between adhering to the law or pleasing a president. After a wife and mother, the most important identity I have is that of a military spouse. For a long time, I was silent. The military in general is apolitical. I really decided to speak out because the dangers that were posed by Trump and his supporters. I see where our country is going and I don't like it. I want to be part of the change. I want to show my daughter that you can work on a small level and still make a difference. And I truly believe that suburban women can lead that change. I think the best way to use my voice is to use it to speak to other women who have the same issues and problems that I do. And that's what I hope to do with the Suburban Women Problem Podcast with Red, Wine, and Blue. I want people to have a place where they can understand it's okay once you have more information to change your mind. I think that's great. And uh, I am thankful for suburban women. I think they saved America two, two years ago. Uh, hopefully they're going to save it again. But tell us about that. What is the genesis of this podcast? What do you ultimately hope to gain from it? What have you what uh, success has you have you seen and experienced so far from it? Uh, well, we um, we started and 2021, May 2021. And actually, they just kind of cold called me and asked me red, white and blue, they wanted to do this podcast and red, white and blue had been active um, in Ohio in the 2020 election. And they've since expanded to Michigan, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Um, we just try to mobilize women and uh, relational organizing, which is something I think you're going to be, you know, those who are not familiar with the idea of relational organizing, trying to break through the those information silos that we have um, to, through which a lot of us receive our information these days due to algorithms and news channels and <coughs> et cetera. So even, you know, print publications. So, you know, talking to our friends and our acquaintances and mobilizing. So that's through the podcast. And you know, we try to kind of demystify. We try to talk about um, 
you know, real, real people, real women interviewing other generally women talking about issues like, you know, moms of trans kids and what they wish the rest of us knew how to be an ally. I mean, what is critical race theory back when that was kind of, that was one of our first episodes, that was a thing. And now I think everyone kind of understands it's, it's nothing, but at the time, you know, Democrats, I think have this tendency like, like, Oh, we don't have to talk about that. It's not really happening. It's mm. not really a thing. And that, and I, and I, I like to liken it to like, I don't think Alex and I were ready with, you know, when our daughter was nine with some of the questions she had, like, Oh, that wasn't on my schedule to discuss <laughs> um, these things until you were like 11 or 12. But guess what? Forever. You don't get to call it a shot. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I mean the army, they say the enemy gets a vote. And I think that's a great way, even in politics, like, you know, the enemy gets a vote. The person you're running against gets to decide. They might have, you know, they might start a conversation about something and you can't just say, oh, I'm not going to talk about that because that's not a thing. So we talk about those things. And then this this tour that I've been doing um, has been really encouraging, you know, to go out and attend some of these events where we have so many women coming and like, they're like, I've never done anything political before. I've never talked to my friends about politics, but now I know I need to. And, you know, on the other hand, I talked to Alex yesterday and I said I did an interview and I was really upset because we still have people who think, oh, well, we didn't put out signs um, because, you know, this was people for school board in Bucks County, which is like unhinged. And um, they were saying they last year people didn't put out signs because they their neighbors asked them not to. Mm. So, you know, it's this moment of like, look, we're never going back to normal. I know you think by not putting up the signs that you're bringing down the temperature and it's going to be okay, but that, that ship has sailed. Mm-hmm. And we have to convince people, even this is going to happen whether you participate or not. Do you want your voice heard? Do you want to do this? So I, I'm excited. It's been energizing, you know, just to, and inspirational to see these women mobilized and be active in their communities, but there's still a lot of work to do. And um, so I, if I hadn't heard that clip in a long time and um, you know, it, it's, it's a nice reminder, but I, I think it's not, I mean, it's, it's a, a small part of red, white and blue, which is a pack. And we hope to expand to other States. Just um, we have some great like user-friendly technology and other things. And, and, you know, I guess we'll find out in November, but the, the number of people that we have mobilized and the excitement pe- women have to talk to their friends has been um, just really tremendous. And it's only growing. And I, I agree suburban women, which are not a monolith, I mean, more more people of color color live in the suburbs than in urban areas. Not what you think. And we're dispelling some myth. And I hope um, getting everyone on the team. Mm. Well, it's so important. I I just want a quick comment back to to, uh, Rachel. You know, um, this is a game of inches. And uh, this is a particularly important demographic where your your efforts are materially, conceivably materially going to change outcomes, whether it's local or uh, or federal elections. So, uh, you know, it's do we hate it when you're gone do we miss you yes but we know that you're doing very very important work and we're very very proud of you mm-hmm. thanks i i second that uh so please keep doing that and 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 uh hopefully the impact is going to be seen in a little more than a month uh yeah. alex i want to switch and talk about ukraine and as a disclaimer i want to say that i am not an expert on ukraine 
Uh, I kind of feel like me talking to you about Ukraine is kind of like Harry Styles talking to Mick Jagger about music. Um, <laughs> I like Harry. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is your daughter into Harry? She's into uh, every, like, very, she's very into music. That dude's got a beautiful voice. I mean, I don't he know does. what, uh, there's a couple. And he's a By really the way, that's the big soundbite to come out of this interview is Colonel <laughs> yeah. Vinman loves Harry Styles. That's the news. That's uh, what's breaking a, tomorrow. He's got a good voice. And <laughs> I really like it. I like it. I liked him in Dunkirk, too. And if he wants to invite us to, like, you know, to a concert and, you know, Ali gets backstage patches, so be it. Oh, we're going we're gonna to try to make that happen. That's a challenge I, I want to take on. Uh, I took my daughter. Have you seen Harry? Have you taken your daughter to see Harry? No. No, I tried to get tickets, but I couldn't get tickets. Um, but she wanted to go. I actually tried to get a line from a Taylor Swift song into Alex's opening statements, and the lawyers <laughs> took it out, which is really just so disappointing. I thought I'd really put in something. Lawyers, they have no gonna, sense of humor. You know, get a lot of people. I know, they're lawyers. They're I think really I dumb. actually, if I made it onto any of the night shows, I was going to say, I was going to use that line <laughs> and then say, you know, the whole... You say it in the street, it's a knockout. You say it in a tweet, it's a cop out. You know, uh, nice. that's why. Go uh, Taylor. Uh, yeah. uh, you guys are Swifties. I didn't know that. Actually, I had Eric Swalwell. I had Eric Swalwell on this podcast uh, several weeks back, and and uh, found that he was a Swifty too, which kind of shocked me. But I took my daughter recently to see uh, Harry at Madison Square Garden. I think I was yeah, one of like one I, wanted to go to. I was like one of six dads in the entire place, and and I went into the men's room. And I go to the Madison Square Garden all the time for Knicks basketball games. I usually I'm waiting online like 20 minutes. I went into the men's room. There was nobody in it because there was no men in this place. I literally walked in. I was like, hmm, which urinal should I use? Like, I've never had that experience at the garden. It was the craziest. Plus, all these, there was like 14-year-old girls like wearing, I mean, I, my daughter was like, dad, turn around and face the wall. I was like, I didn't know where to put myself. But uh, Ukraine. Okay, so nuclear Armageddon. This is what Joe Biden dropped on us last night at a at a fundraiser in New York. We So we all kind of woke up to the prospect of uh, uh of this kind of thing he said his direct quote was we have not faced the prospect of armageddon since kennedy and the cuban missile crisis and basically he was suggesting that because russia is so grossly underperforming that putin is either going to panic or he's going to get desperate or he's just going to get yeah. angry and do something really stupid what, what's your yeah. take on that so this is good i get to test my material here before i go uh, <laughs> before you go into real news walls. outlets <laughs> Well, I've, uh, actually, while we were talking, uh, I, I got an invite for uh, uh, Nicole, so uh -huh. do that. This, uh, but I, I would say, look, I actually, if I wasn't working on my doctoral dissertation, this, there's an, an important article to, to write on uh, the Russia's, Russia's uh, threats of nuclear war. It is, to me, it is a, a high stakes bluff. It is there is not a great deal of substance to it. Um, there is a increasing chance of accident or miscalculation. But this would not be a conscious decision that Russia took. This would be like a whole massive series of unfortunate events that could lead up to it. And I think that's what the president was referring to. He was referring to the fact that the temperature around the, the potential for the use of nuclear weapons has changed. He is a, you know, he's a longtime senator. He's he kind of musing, uh, musing on this a notion of where we are relative to history. You know, he's he was. He's, you know, he's a super old guy. So he was basically the, he was aware of these things as they were going on uh, back in the olden days. Um, and to me, it was just him kind of t at this event talking about what the temperature is, how 
the geopolitical uh, environment has changed. This is the same thing that I've said in different terms. I, you know, I wouldn't have probably used those words as president in, in something that was being recorded. But this is the same thing I've been talking about from before this war started, that a war between Russia and Ukraine would be a geopolitical earthquake that would transform the terrain, the geopolitical terrain of the world. And yes, we are now in a, in a world where there's there's a the tiniest of incremental changes in the probability that nuclear weapons could be used. But it has changed as a result of this war. That's why I was so keen on avoiding this war in the first place by arming the Ukrainians, warning the Russians, not taking this kind of, uh, you know, inevitability uh, view that Russia was going to roll over Ukraine. We didn't do any of that. And we also, frankly, over the course of the past eight months, didn't do enough to arm Ukraine to warn Russia off or close off their possibilities of, of success. I think the fact is that if they were getting knocked down every single time at every single turn, um, you know, Putin would would be forced in a position of not escalating, but de-escalating because he would, he, the military wouldn't be in a position to kind of continue to hold ground or something of that nature. So I think the president's remarks are, again, adding some context that the last time we were in a position where, you know, there was some real danger of a nuclear escalation was in 1962 for the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I can tell your your uh, your listeners that it the, the situation has not fundamentally changed. There is really no risk of war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, nuclear war because it's mutually assured destruction. There's no, I mean, I'm sorry, let's, uh, let's wind that back. There is no real war, a risk of war between NATO and Russia, US and Russia, um, because of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, Putin is a guy that's going to save his skin. He's going to, going to look to live to fight another day. He's going to take actions that preserve options uh, as much as he can. And a, a nuclear war with the U.S. doesn't do that. It does the opposite of like aggrandizing Putin and his legacy and power. It ends all that. But what, what if he sees this as an existential crisis and, you know, the, the off ramp that we keep hearing about, like if he doesn't see that if the, if he's backed into a corner like a New York City subway rat, isn't that a fertile ground for some kind of nuclear aggression? No, because one of them is direct and one of them is kind of uh, uh, theoretical. You know, the the use of nuclear weapons is in direct response to an existential crisis. Meaning, you have you have NATO troops on uh, uh, on the doorsteps of Moscow. You have a nuclear attack by NATO. That is a clear and present danger, not the atmospherics of, well, if these series of things happen, then the regime is in peril. I think that there there is a recipe for escalation with some sort of escalation with Ukraine uh, probing and prodding to figure out where the vulnerabilities are to see if they're if you could break uh, Western resolve or the, the support Western support towards Ukraine. Those types of things are going to play out. Absolutely. We're in a we're in a more dangerous period of. Uh, potential risks as Russia looks for vulnerabilities. But when push comes to shove, there's not going to be a decision made to use nuclear weapons against NATO. I think that the calculus is slightly different in Ukraine. Uh, it is also uh, really points to a situation where it would be, it would precipitate the same kind of, of outcomes. I think the, the fact is that, you know, there have been plenty of policymakers now that said that this would be a game changer uh, this would change kind of the way that the um, the West has 
already thought about this war. Uh, you know, some folks have said the destruction of the the Black Sea, Russia's Black Sea Fleet, and things of that nature, which which again spells the direct confrontation between NATO and Russia and puts us on that path towards nuclear Armageddon. The Russians are going to avoid that. They want something that gives them a, as much pressure as possible to try to warn off the West. But when push comes to shove, they're not going to not going to challenge the West directly. They're just having too hard a time. The other issue with Russia using uh, nuclear weapons is, you know, it still has vestiges of support with India and, and China. It would put those countries in an untenable position where they would have to basically break relations with Russia because right. it chose to use a nuclear weapon against the seemingly kind of, you know, nothing regional power because its uh, conventional forces were getting their asses whooped. So and I think um, it's slightly higher, but it's not significantly higher even against U Ukraine. And what about Putin's leadership? Is that in, in any real uh, uh, danger? And if if so, if there was a horizon that included uh, his ouster, uh, what would Russia look like beyond that? What, what kind of leadership would is, is on, waiting in the wings to either create some sense of normalcy and sanity or take, take it even worse uh, to a worse place? Sure. So my analysis, I'd say, is, is completely valid for the next three to six months, both on nuclear weapons um, and, frankly, the same will apply to, to Putin's regime. I don't think, see the, the, the acute danger signs of, of Putin being removed, uh, either by a palace coup or by, you know, major unrest. I think that's that he has enormous repressive tools that he could exercise against the population at large. I think that, you know, the, the uh, regime is going to close ranks. What it looks like in the longer term, I think he does have an expiration date now because of this war. I think that might be 2024 when he, he might want to step aside um, as his, uh, his current term expires and let somebody else be the face of, of uh, Russia while he pulls the strings from behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I think he did that in 2008. I could see that kind of situation unfolding. I do see a, a greater instability unfolding. So there are there's going to be violence in, in the streets in, in Russia. I think, um, you know, there's going to be some pro probing and prodding like the precursors to potentially what might end up being uh, a nuclear use against Ukraine, I think there are a lot of them. It's going to be anything from a nuclear accident at a power plant. It's going to be attacks like we saw against the Nord Stream pipeline. It could be undersea cables that allow us to communicate with, with our European allies. It could be a whole bunch of different cyber attacks. All these different things would unfold before we get to this kind of end stage of, of nuclear use. Uh, I know you guys got to go uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, my, my last question on this subject is, what do you make of this bizarre uh, cozying up to Putin and Russia by the by the Republican Party, which is just antithetical to decades of Cold War and, 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 and nationalism and aggressive aggression towards Russia? It, it just seems like it's we're living in an upside down world. I don't know, Rachel. Do you have an answer to that one? <laughs> I, uh, I, I do not have an answer. Well, we happen to have Larry David here. He's got an answer for me. I, you know, the, Enough! The, the thing, it's, it's, <laughs> I think what it comes down to is, you know, these all, every single one of these characters um, are in it for personal gain. Mm -hmm. And they see some personal gain in being traitors and treasonous. Uh, you know, whether that meets the, the technical definition or the you know, criminal liability definition, they're they're prepared to uh, to explore those avenues because they see personal gain uh, 
based on this kind of radicalized far right. Um, and it's not, you know, it's still fringe. It still amounts to, you know, millions of people, but in a country of 330 million people uh, that they could cater to and pander to it. Because Tucker Carlson might be. But they have a loud voice. The problem is, like, it seems like out, you know, a a little outsized. Sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Tucker Carlson's ratings are, but he probably. At any given day, he's he probably has about three million people watching him or something like that, right? That amounts to about one percent of the population. One percent of the population. We need to remember that. And you know, he's 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 got probably. About that many, he's got probably a bigger followership in Russia, frankly, at this point than he does in the U.S. But do you think he believes the bullshit that comes out of his mouth, or is he just pandering to his audience and wanting to make a buck? And and I I think he's he's a grifter, and I think he largely doesn't believe it. Uh, He may have convinced themselves himself of certain aspects of it, but he's I I, frankly I think he's just uh, he's a liar and a cheat and a scoundrel and uh, willing to do anything. And that's, you know, basically, that's why he does it. Well, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Alex, Rachel, you guys have been amazing. You have a lot of fans out there. Hopefully, they're going to enjoy hearing about you guys and what makes you tick. And um, I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Andy. So there you have it. Episode 19 in the can. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg. Our Jane of all trades, Jen Hamoud. Cricket Langell for our logo design. Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music. Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And an awesome thank you again to our amazing, very entertaining, very smart guests, Rachel and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.